Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by city filmmaker and all-around gadabout Chris Evans. Yo. And freelance writer and critic and deeply contemplative thinker, Virat Nehru. <laughs> Ouch. Yes. So we have a big show. We are talking about the Japanese Film Festival, which is in full swing at event cinemas. But first, we are talking about the biggest fightingest film in cinemas, and that can only be Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yeah, um, it's probably the film that we have the most reason to fight that's in cinemas at the moment, and I guess the battle begins now? The battle begins now. We are all in Justice League. This is Zack Snyder's third comic book film in the DC universe, with significant input, late input from Josh Whedon. It stars Ben Affleck, Batfleck as Batman, One Woman Gal Gadot, Ezra Miller as The Flash, Jason Momoa as Aquaman, Ray Fisher as Cyborg, and a surprise, not surprise edition of one character who you may or may not see coming. He has a moustache. Yeah, or does he? We, we, you'll have to watch it to find out. Now, this film, look, the best thing I can say about this movie is that it was better than Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman. That is not a particularly high benchmark but there you go uh now this film the biggest issue i've got to say is it had no relation to the other films there are two films that preceded it but they kind of just forgot the lore of these movies and just kind of went right in and it, almost started the fresh they're basically trying now to become marvel and it feels nothing like the tone that they previously established for this universe batman versus superman and man of steel were very grim affairs and this is kind of trying trying to strike the balance of that with this light joss whedon-ish quip happy tone and uh it's basically it's not trying to say anything the other films are extremely pretentious this one is completely unpretentious but it's not exactly a good trade-up it's a lightweight movie almost to the point of not existing it's not about anything it's really sad that you introduce me as a contemplative thinker for this episode and then we are talking about justice league because this is probably the most non-contemplative movie to talk about. There's nothing contemplative in this movie. So I don't know what I can say, apart from the fact that this is probably a better put together montage version of Suicide Squad. I mean, Suicide Squad was basically a series of music videos stitched together. This is probably slightly better than that, but still equally worse. Well, there were some music video elements. Equally worse. Certainly Zack Snyder tried to relive some elements of Watchmen. I mean, you can't just take something that worked well, that was the one aspect of worked well, another film, and just throw it. He has a shtick. You know, every Zack Snyder movie you go to, you pretty much know you're going to see dudes getting thrown across the room in slow motion. Everything has this slick, like, blue-tinted advertising kind of look going on. Uh, you know, this is the same. But the basic problem, or perhaps the bigger problem, was uh, the sort of jarring of tone between Whedon's sort of, you know, man-baby sort of tonal inferences and Snyder's sort of heavy-hitting man-baby inferences. So, you know, both man-babiness yeah. kind of produced a man adolescent child in the end. I didn't exactly find Joss Whedon's stuff to be well executed. Yeah, but... we, we are presuming what was Joss Whedon's stuff. But you can, stuff you can is... tell, though. Yeah. These, these two, they have such an imprint that it, do, it's not, it doesn't take too much to figure out which stuff's Joss Whedon and which stuff is Zack Snyder. An example, Zack Snyder, in my opinion, has always been an awful dramatist. He has some talent at stringing together visuals, but he cannot tell a story to save his life. And scenes like the dramatic moments between Cyborg and his father have uh, Zack Snyder's ineptitude at staging drama all over them. It's just a slog to get through these dark, moody, potentous scenes of people discussing really serious things that nev don't 
end up mattering at all to the climax of this movie. And then the next scene, you've got like dudes quipping back and forth and hipster Joss Whedon type dialogue. It's a really all over the place film. Yeah, I mean, those the characters that were introduced to that effect were Alfred and Commissioner Gordon, two yeah. fantastic actors, J.K. Simmons and Jeremy Irons, who Wait. were there for all of three minutes collectively. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's what I was going to say. Are they there in this movie? Because I failed to spot them. We're really not sure. But the best thing about this film for me was that quip smart dialogue and those few very signature Josh Whedon moments. And the best moment in the film, The Flash, I've got to hand it to him. Ezra Miller was excellent. Ezra Miller did, did do well in and, this. Surprisingly and, well. And there's one great scene involving him and an encounter with another character we don't want to ruin. You want yeah, to see who, the film. You know who it is. You know who it is. But on the other hand, there's also one scene with The Flash with an encounter with another great character, which is very cringeworthy, which you definitely do not want to see when The Flash falls oh, yeah, on top yeah, yeah. of this other character. Which okay, is executed the Flash in falls the on worst. Wonder Woman's boobs, that, and it's 2017, <laughs> and that's that's where we're at, apparently. That's a punch it's a, it's like a, line of it's a like boob a, joke. It's, like, it's kind of like Jerry Lewis, like, yeah, but like, not on a good day. Except it's not even that clever. No, you're right, it's not even <laughs> It's not, it's not. And the treat, you look at the treatment of the character of Wonder Woman in this film as to how she was treated in the excellent... Oh yeah, it's James interesting how... Year, the, and it's, there's absolutely no comparison. It is really bad in terms the, of the camera angles, in terms of the focus. Yeah, it's really... The Amazonian pro- switched from full body armor in the last film to suddenly being in like 80s gold bikini kind of comic book look. Um, yeah, Zack Snyder's touch is all but, over but it. Also, but also, like, you know, just the tone of the movie where basically Wonder Woman is in this incredible sausage fest. Essentially, everyone wants to apparently do her in this film. It's weird. It's yeah, just it's weird. creepy. Um, look, there are some good aspects to this film, I think. The Flash and the way his uh, power was visualized to me was really cool design. Um, that's where Zack Snyder's few strengths as a director really come out there is actually some really inventively staged action in this movie um like there's a scene early on involving the MacGuffin being tossed around by amazonians while the villain tries to chase it that uses some really cool um sort of like whipping camera um and uh, there's another scene later on involving you know what that scene does with the horizontal plane there's another scene that has really interesting camera movements down a vertical plane where they're all fighting in a shaft and um, the action's moving up and down and the camera is fluidly tracking it. All of that stuff is cool. But by the end, there's this endless bash em up roll where the action regresses to what we get in every other comic book movie. And it has the same flaw that they always have that we've spoken about before, where you just don't know when the battle's going to end. You, you don't know how they're going to die. There was no context here for how characters can die. When they like, are just very easily How much damage back. can they sustain? Yeah, they just, they're they just speak. like sponges for punches. So it's, they get smashed through walls after wall after wall. And then eventually one of them dies. And how? I don't know. And on that, um, I did enjoy some of the action scenes, but they were overblown with CGI. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. CGI, sure. a cornfield. It absolutely, there no that was a death of cinema moment. Seriously? Right. Yeah, that was a death of cinema moment. Like, in the past, a big budget movie could be expected to go out of their way to film, you know, something that's inconvenient but looks spectacular, like a sunset. And now we're just resorting to a really fake looking cornfield because they can't budget in the, the time to film at sunset like what's going on to cinema speaking of things that were inconvenient the entire plot hinged on there being no cell phone reception internet in an area in northern russia i mean seriously yeah and what this movie also damages this comic book universe because the twist or the you know the late film plot development essentially makes everyone in this universe invulnerable um we won't spoil how but but yeah what chris is talking about because we are going to slightly spoil it because you shouldn't watch this movie it's called the mother box twist so the way the mother boxes are used in the film basically 
just completely invalidates anything that's happened up till now. And I don't know what's even the point of the DCU as of this point. Yeah, I mean, and on this again, it has a villain who is not Thanos of giant horns, who does not have a, uh, who is called Steppenwolf, who does not have a bunch of tesseracts, which are actually called mother boxes, who is not just simply trying to destroy the world. And that's it. He's just trying to destroy the world. His design was cool. That's all I'll give him. Yeah. And and Karen Hines, what was he even doing there? I don't know. What is it with cubes in these movies? We've seen it like a magical cube in the Avengers and Transformers in this. Like, is it... I like the square shape. I don't know what people have against uh, it's it. Magical it's cubes yeah. control the Ma- fate of the magical universe. Magical cubes are bad. It's just another one of these movies, you know. Like if you want to go and see a movie about a bunch of people trying to stop a bad guy from getting a magical, uni- you know, cube that will destroy the world, then go see it. Um, but you know, no thanks. Acute yeah. angles and obtuse angles are confusing, but right angles are great. So cubes are fantastic. Well, if you want to see a movie about cubes trying to sp- destroy a universe with a CGI villain. Uh, the Justice League <laughs> is in cinema. That about sums it up, Before doesn't Infinity it? War comes State out. State of cinema in 2017. It's, Justice League is in cinemas now, but we are talking what is also in cinemas now, and that is the Japanese Film Festival. But first... Yes, uh, yesterday was the death anniversary of... Actually, no, this earlier in the week, not yesterday, but anyway. It was the death anniversary of perhaps the greatest poet of the 20th century from the subcontinent, Fairlamit's Fez. Now, I love Fez's poetry, and a lot of his poetry actually is sung still today in the subcontinent. And so I'm going to recite a few lines for you. To Fez, the greatest poet of the subcontinent. Thank you, Virat. Now, next we're talking about the Japanese Film Festival, which has been screening for the past week and is in cinemas for one more week at Event Cinemas George Street. We have seen a lot of films this week. And, well, the Japanese Film Festival has always been one of the standout film festivals in the country. This year is particularly great. This year has been very strong. Really fantastic films. surprisingly strong. Um, Really, really good quality um, films across the board. Based on this festival, I would say the Japanese cinema is very strong at the moment. Um, There are a lot of very good filmmakers working in it. And let's get the ball rolling. Yes, we should. So the first film we are talking about, we saw on opening night last week, and that is Mumon, Land of Stealth. It is directed by Yoshihiro Nakamura, and it is a period flick about the Iga province as home to the Iga ninja and the warlords who fear to invade due to their superior fighting skills. If it sounds like an Asterix comic, it is a little bit like an Asterix comic. Yeah, look, there are a lot of it's fantastic so fighting. comic book style. When you hear it's a period pick about ninjas, you might imagine like a, a serious samurai movie. No, no, no. This is like comic book come to life style. Um, and the the great strength of this film is its action direction. It is stunning. The movie, um, they're clearly using a very restricted budget, but they make incredible use of it. Really fluid camera staging, fantastic use of sound, um, really three-dimensional uh, battles where people can come in from any direction, making use of all the um, mythological aspects of the ninja. Yeah, it's very supernatural in terms of how the fighting is staged. I really enjoyed that aspect of the film. But Glenn, I think you had some issues with the kind of comic book slash serious slash sentimental tone of the movie and how it switched with each other. So, what are your reservations? I did, I did really, I did really enjoy this film. However, it tried to be several genres at once. One was an action fighting film. One was a straight comedy, and one was a romance of sorts, which was inserted. I feel a little clumsily and led to what was clearly trying to be a big emotional payoff, but didn't register as such. The emotional payoff in this film was really uh, one of two action scenes, one which is staged at the beginning, one which is staged at the end, which are very powerful and very well done. The big blow-em-up, all-in-action all sequences are great, but the ones where it's really mono-e-mono 
Romano and the central character against one or two other villains, or depending on how you choose to look at them, not villains, are really the standouts of this film for me, oh, and yeah. not those subplots. Yeah, I agree with that. It it wasted its long run time, in my opinion. The first half of the movie has an interesting approach where it tries to fill us in on all the sides who are going to do battle in the last hour. And so we have a lot of behind the scenes politicking going on. But the later, I feel that like that's all of that screen time could have been more wisely used developing some of the characters like uh, Muman himself, who isn't that fleshed out as a character at all, or his love interest, because their romance ends up being really pivotal to the third act. And yet it's not developed at all. And and we spend all this time on politics stuff that beyond the surface level interest in it isn't that relevant to the ultimate climax of the of the film or the themes that it's hinging on. And also it feels like a tonal imbalance to go from this very serious, over, admittedly over the top, but still played quite straight um, political drama to the comic book smash em up in the last hour. It's interesting because uh, even though the politics was a bit jarring, I was very interested and it was refreshing for me to just see that kind of politics in a somewhat mainstream, happy-go-lucky action movie. Because if you compare that with how action movies and comedies usually do politics, there's none of that. Oh, I agree. It was it was great. It's just that if characters like Mumon's wife were going to be important, perhaps time should have been spent on them yeah, this is, this instead is, of going as long as the politics. This is still a film I'd recommend. I do I recommend it, it too. It is, it is a really fun, it is a really good film. The other film we are talking about is Over the Fence, which Chris and Verrat saw. Guys, what do we think of Over the Fence? Uh, love this movie. Over the Fence was the main standout from this. It's a, uh, was the direction. It's from a deeply undersung director, in my opinion, Nobuhiro Yamashita. Um, there are no more screenings of Over the Fence this week, but you can catch another film by him, which I'm looking forward to seeing, called um, My Uncle, which is on, on this Saturday at 3.45 p.m. Sorry, this Sunday at 3.45 p.m. But back to Over the Fence. Yeah, his direction is so beautiful. Um, you, it In some ways, it evokes Ozu in the way that it's really delicately composed and it's attentive to the space that the characters uh, put within. Um, but it also had this Robert Altman-like sensitivity to the way people talk and the way people talk over each other and small moments of interpersonal drama. Um, it's beautiful visually with, um, in a very delicate, understated way and really graceful editing um, and re- all, while at the same time striking the right balance and letting the um, small moments of performance from the actors breathe. This was uh, clearly my favorite depressing movie of 2017, and I love depressing movies, but this was the most depressing movie of all depressing movies of 2017, but still I loved it. Uh, In a way, what I loved it most about it was that it humanizes a lot of the characters which you would often find in the fringes in mainstream composition. These were the characters which were the focus of this movie. These characters otherwise, in a lot of, you know, big budget films, would be often side characters or even they would just get their own 30 second kind of mentions but these are actually the stars yeah it's about people in the fringes it's about impoverished people and it's quite realistic about the ways that mental health um, problems can affect your life and trap you in a cycle that it's very difficult to work your way out of Um, but at the same time yeah it's about looking for small moments of happiness when you're trapped within this um, cycle of negative events that's yeah. really hard to break out of. I was uh, making a very sort of rustic joke to Chris about how this movie is basically about the center link of Japanese people yeah, yeah. and basically how you get caught up in that spiral and how you can't break free of that and what that actually means when people say you can't just go and get a job it's easy it's not. Yeah it's a little bit imbalanced in um, how 
some of the characters are developed where, again, as if this was the case with Mimons, the screen time could have been allocated a little bit better. But nonetheless, it's a very sensitively written and directed film. Highly recommended um, that you seek out Over the Fence. That was Over the Fence. And the next film we were talking about, I had the pleasure of catching this last night, is Hamon Yakuza Boogie. Now, this is a situation we've all found ourselves in. It's about a loan shark who wants to go legit and invests in a movie to be a producer and loses the money and now has to go back to the underworld to pay back the money. Like the, one of the films, of, one of the, actually, two, I'll say two of the films we've talked about tonight. The fight sequences are excellent. It's a lot of fun, in large mm-hmm. part due to one particular excellent actor. Chris, what do we think of Hamon? This is a bit of a slow burn. I really wasn't sure what I thought of the movie for the first maybe like 45 minutes to an hour, but it, because it keeps a very low kind of tone with the direction. It's a comedy, but things are played very low key with um but this allows the movie to gracefully kind of switch tones because it keeps it this kind of simmering heat before the the big flames burst up in these outrageous action scenes that take you by surprise because the movie's been so low key up until now it has this so character restrained. yeah it's so restrained and then suddenly it has this character who's prone to bursts of violence and because of the style of the film his violence surprises you because the movie does not prepare you for what's coming and it works perfectly for the comedic setups he's an absolutely superb actor and he has a few excellent including one in the kitchen um, this is one of those actors who can be incredibly sincere and serious, but at the same time uproariously funny. It's a rare gift. It's very hard to do. Michael Shannon has it. Very few performers out there really have that degree. And this guy, he just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Um, So very well directed in how it it jumped through the tones, but also a, a great script because these characters are really nicely differentiated from each other. And you're not even though this movie full, you know, could have easily felt like a formula film because it's quite similar to a lot of films I've seen before in terms of the basic overlay of what happens, but it doesn't feel like you know what's, where it's going at all. It feels wildly unpredictable and chaotic almost in the best possible way. No, there was only one really predictable scene, and that's quite a funny scene in the bank, and you kind of knew what right. one character was yeah, going to yeah, do, yeah. but it was still hilarious was watching still hilarious. the fallout because you knew the one character you absolutely love is going to rock up at some point yeah. and absolutely steal the show. It's a movie that it takes maybe like an hour to get you to really know these characters, and and then it just has so much fun with them. There's a lot that it pays off fantastically in the end where you grow to actually like characters who start off seeming like they're people with no redeeming value. And um, yeah, it, it had it was a very funny payoff. After a slow start, I really respected the way this movie was put together, and I really enjoyed it. It was. Of all the films I've seen that we're talking about this week, I think this is probably how my favorite action sequences. They're much more low-key oh, compared yeah, to what yeah. were some of the others, but one car chase sequence of a sort. Oh, um, fantastic. Yeah. Um, really worth checking out. Um, Hamon Yakuza Boogie is playing on Saturday afternoon. 3.30 p.m. At 3.30 p.m., so please do seek them out. The next film we are talking about is Birds Without Names. Uh, yeah, this is about a woman who just freeloads off her husband. Her husband is like this grim caricature of a person that could never exist where nothing is good about him. And uh, he's he's just basically a disgusting slob, right? Except he works hard, I guess. Yeah, it, it's basically sort of this uh, interesting relationship between two very toxic people who yeah. then unload their toxicity. Toxicity. Ah, bah, that's the word. That's the word. <laughs> On to other people. Uh, but at the same time, I just don't care about any of these people. Look, it has some interesting plot twists along the way. Um, but the last plot twist that it, where it all hinges together is just stupid, honestly. And um, the direction somehow managed to sell that in the moment. Yep. But um, but the direction on 
elsewhere was a bit of a weak point. Often this movie strains for poetry where poetry isn't really there. And uh, it feels a little like a clash with the grounded kitchen sink realist style they're going for with the rest of the time. And at the end of the movie, there's a major, major misstep where it tries to wring some kind of sentimental pathos out of this incredibly toxic uh, relationship dynamic. And it, it just feels wrong. There's no way you can convince me that there was re- any real love going on in this film. And I'm not, and you're not going to make me cry. Sorry. Yeah, Next. I mean, the thing is, this movie tries to use trauma as some kind of narrative plot device. And I think we've moved past that into, or at least we're trying to move past it. I'm not sure if a lot of directors have understood and got that message. But yes, don't use trauma as a cheap plot device, please. On that note... Rage is another film. It's playing tomorrow night at 8.25 p.m. Rage is quite strong, but it also uses trauma as a plot device where the characters who are perpetrating trauma are the ones who the film is more interested. It it doesn't show a a sensitivity to the victims for a movie that hinges on two different cases of sexual assault, um, which is a bit of a problem. But onto the good things about it. Rage is about... It's kind of a multi-strand, multi-character drama. Um, but unlike movies like Crash, uh, it doesn't hinge on everything coming together at the end. It's about various people over across Japan who their partners or the people they know suspect might be a serial killer who's on the run, who is known to have gotten plastic surgery and changed his appearance. Um, it's yeah, it's quite enjoyable in the uh, very well put together. Um, Production, great cinematography with vibrant colors, great score by Ryoichi Sakamoto, which is quite similar to his score from The Revenant. Um, a lot of great acting, um, but lacking something and a little bit overdrawn in the last act. The next one we are talking about is Before We Vanish. Oh, by the way, bef- uh, before we before we vanish, Rage is on tomorrow night at eight twenty-five. But also, before we vanish, uh, there was a film that Chris really liked. I liked it slightly less, but it's really interesting and got a really interesting premise that really grabs you from the very beginning of the moment. It's about aliens and how they might take over the world without us realizing it. And it really the body snatcher style. Yeah, essentially. And it actually does follow through with that premise because a lot of movies use that as a MacGuffin or a plot device, but don't actually follow through. But this movie is actually very, very hardcore to its premise. Yeah, this is a film from Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who is one of the best Japanese directors currently working, and he's in a very experimental phase in his career now. This movie is just playing with genre. It's kind of low-key, like funny in a satirical way, but then it goes into mild thriller territory. There's some light horror elements, some bursts of unexpected action, and also some physical comedy that's surprisingly funny. Um, It's got this kind of manic jumping between the tones at times, yet in other ways feels very restrained. A totally unique directorial vision. Um, I thought this movie had a genuine emotional kick. It it was a little slow to win me over, but I felt it. It ends up being about about love um, in a, a way that feels genuine. Yeah, because I was introduced as a contemplative person uh, in this show. Yes, (laughs) let me put in my contemplative two cents. (laughs) This movie is also about philosophy in a very unpretentious way. I mean, because actually the plot device or the actual catalyst of this plot is about concepts and how the aliens take away not anything but our concepts of things. This is actually a very interesting and scientific... Yeah. They, they take concepts in order to learn about humanity, but the yeah. result of that is that the concept is lost from the, the people that they exactly. learn the concept from. So it's a very interesting sort of thing, and often you sort of 
you know, question yourselves whether or not how you connect with other people. So in a way, it's the two-way communication happening of not only watching the movie, but you're also analyzing how you interact with other people yeah. and whether or not there are certain things which hinge upon other things. And it's about weighing up the, the human race. Will the good or the bad points of humanity win out? What will the aliens decide? Are we redeemable? And uh, I found there's a lot of great comedy out of the in- their people's interactions with um, with the aliens. Um it's unpredictable. Go see it. I really enjoyed Before We Vanish. I believe it might be getting an Australian cinema release next year. So that was Before We Vanish. The next thing we're talking about is The Tokyo Night Sky is Always the Densest Shade of Blue by director Yuya Ishii. It's about two young Tokyo locals isolated in the city of 10 million who find each other. This has a very before the sunrise ellipsis sort of element to it. Susuku Ikimatsu, one of the pair, is absolutely superb. He can go from incredibly frenetic, and those are his best moments in the film, to incredibly introspective and not being hackneyed. He does it superbly well. Um, there are some excellent, great scenes where the two just wander through the city. And um, I usually let Chris talk about the technical sides of films, but I'm going to do it this week because his use of lighting and natural light as it appears refracted through artificial lighting and artificial things is absolutely superb. Um, please take note, Zack Snyder. It is in a very straightforward way. Um, he has shown an incredible way to show a sense of alienation and impact of a city. Um, there are so... It's also excellent animation in the film. I strongly recommend it. And I will be doing a Q&A with the director at Event Cinemas on Saturday afternoon as part of the festival. So please do come. And the next film we are talking about is, what we're looking forward to talking about is Anti-Porno. Um, can I point out firstly that, Glenn, this is the funniest you've been in the entirety of my knowing you. <laughs> so congratulations. You're finally realizing what humor is. Oh. Uh, thanks for what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, on to Antipono, which is directed by Sion Sono. And that rhymes. I didn't realize that until I actually said it. Antipono, Sion Sono. <laughs> there we go. Oh, and by the way, this movie, rhymes if you want to see this movie, by the um, from what you're about to hear, uh, like, please leave now because the only screening is at, like at 8.30 p.m. at but, George Street. So if you live first, within an hour. But yeah. you listen to the but show. But listen to my 60 minute, 60, not 60 minutes, 60 seconds quick bad review of this because actually this is something which you should see in the cinema because it's fantastic. Uh, Sion Sono has been trying to make his feminist sort of films for a while. He kind of got a misstep with Tag, but I think he's finally landed right with this one. It's a really interesting take on the gender dynamics within the Japanese society and also Japanese film industry, but also, but interestingly, it plays with narrative and how we interact with the film medium. Now, that's interesting itself because Sion is not only doing his sort of gender theory ideas, but also about how we interact with the cinema as a medium and whether we are voyeurist voyeuristic elements to that as well. So, you know, this idea of anti-porno is not only pornographic in the sense of the characters and their interactions, but also whether as we as audiences are pornographic in our way of how we view the cinematic medium. It sounds great. I'm seeing it at 8.30. Looking forward to it. Always oh, like it's, to see it's a fantastic. Film. It changes your sort of off-the-top right. view of things. Sounds good. So, lastly, her love boils bathwater. Um, look, my notes here, I'll just read out the first sentence. Bad. Comma, the worst. Look, this is super, super contrived Japanese weepy, heightened melodrama that feels completely engineered with no genuine characters, um, fueled by just exposition dumps from various characters who come on the piece to say their bit and then prove to the character some point about life. It's about basically a terrible mother who makes a, a series of bad decisions that would be traumatizing her kids, but the movie celebrates them as character building or something. Um, it has just the worst musical score of the year, just endless music in the in the background. Don't see it. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> but if you want to, it's on uh, uh, tomorrow night at 6 p.m. 
But um, it, uh, aside from that one, there are several excellent films that we have discussed and many more at the Japanese Film Festival. Yeah, we saved playing... the worst for last. Sorry. <laughs> yes, we have. Sorry about that. It is playing at <laughs> event cinemas. Uh, you can see at Jaw Street. You can also see an interview with Margaret Cortez that we did last week on the 2SCR website. Um, some other festivals that are coming up or happening this week. The Winter Film Festival, the second annual Indigenous Film Festival, is playing at event cinemas from tomorrow through to the 26th of November. Their premiere is Sweet Country. I saw it at the Adelaide Film Festival. This is one of the best films of the year. It's I'm, I'm so keen. I'm seeing it tomorrow night. Go see it. Do, yep. do, do not miss it. Um, a Night of Horror and Fantastic Planet opens at Dendi Newtown on November 29th. It's absolutely hilarious. Um, indie horror festival I really enjoy it every year the Cine Latino Film Festival is playing now until at Palace Cinemas until the 29th of November right I understand you've seen a couple of the films there yeah I have I've seen uh, You're Killing Me Susanna with Gail Garcia Bernal and it's fantastic I've seen a lot of the comedy uh, a lot of the films are the romantic comedy kind of lighter films so if you enjoy that kind of cinema do run to your nearest Palace ones at Palace Norton Street and Palace Verona and catch them and have a good laugh yeah, the Paul Thomas Anderson Film Festival, on another note, continues at the Randwick Ritz. This week, it's Boogie Nights, 20th anniversary screening. I hear there's something quite special, which we're not allowed to advertise about this screening. So I'll just say that if you're a fan of the film, you might want to come out to this one rather than just watching it on Blu-ray again. Get out and boogie. Yeah, Saturday, Sunday night and Monday night at the Randwick Ritz Cinema. The other thing that is playing at event cinemas is the Polish Festival, the Fifth Annual Polish Film Festival. Uh, they also have some good films there, so I'm looking forward to checking yeah, that out I, with my family. I found out about this late and was like, ah, oh, damn it, I missed the movies I really wanted to see, After Image and Spore. But it sounds like there's some other really interesting films on there. Just JFF has been taking over my brain, so I missed it completely. Look up the Polish Film Festival. Yeah, and the thing that is not JFF, it's always confusing this time of year, which is JIP, which is the Jewish International Film Festival, which is closing tonight, which we're popping over to after this to see. What are we seeing, Virat? Uh, we're seeing Rebel and Raya, which we, I'm sorry to admit, which has stars Kevin Spacey. Which is seen, I think is what attracted Virat to this to the movie because Glenn was going to it already, but and then said, "Yeah, I'm going to this Kevin Spacey no. movie." And Virat was like, "Kevin Spacey, no, I'm there." No, it was J.D. Salinger. I'm a writer. I'm a contemplative person. J.D. Salinger is what attracted me to this. Anyway, our contemplative Kevin Spacey fan, Virat, will be back next week with more musings. That's okay. I introduce you every week now. I've, I've lost all credibility. And bye. Uh, stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. We have been Film Fight Club. Enjoy movies. Have a wonderful night. Good night. Night.